Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. Comets have awed, amazed, and even terrified humanity for thousands of years, with many believing they heralded the end of the world, but could they be the key to reaching and creating new worlds? Comets have a long and mixed history with humanity, often frightening, often seen as omens of change, but always seen as astonishing. Even in the 20th century there were fears even among scientists that passing through a comet tail might kill us, and many a scientific theory then and now contemplate them as bringers of death or even life to this world. They are our most popular candidate for how we might have gotten oceans back on Earth after the apocalyptic encounter of early Earth with a smaller planet that we believe tore off the surface of the proto-Earth and from which we think the Moon later formed, that would have taken a lot of comets, around 10 million the size of Halley's Comet, the best known one, and there was major doubts if this was or could have been the method that got us our oceans, but the impact of such bodies would not have been trivial affairs, we estimate the asteroid that possibly killed the dinosaurs as only five times more massive, and Halley's Comet is not the largest one out there. Today we will be looking at comets from three perspectives. First, tapping existing comets that periodically and potentially conveniently come in close to Earth and the inner solar system. Second, in terms of the icy bodies in deep space these are made from, which number in the countless billions, and third, to making comets artificially as a means of bringing those icy bodies into our inner solar system to be of use. As the fundamental of why we would want to mine comets and not asteroids, their characteristic tail is the key reason. Those comet tails are made of materials which sunlight can heat to boil off that comet's surface, and thus are principally materials that are both very common in deep space and rare in the inner system. They are a mix of rock, dust, water ice, frozen carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, methane, and ammonia. The rock and dust is common enough in the inner system, indeed comets actually have a separate dust tail that's less vibrant than their main ice tail, but those other materials are much less common, indeed virtually the entire accessible supply of some of them in the inner system is here on Earth. So we've got plenty down here, but to use it in space we have to pay that insane fuel cost of dragging it up through our gravity well and atmosphere. So when we're out in space we would rather have a locally available source for in situ resource utilization or ISRU. Critically though, the source we're thinking of is those volatiles so essential to life, and because we can also use compounds like water, methane, and ammonia as rocket fuels too. Comets, the visitors to the inner system from deep space, are potentially one of the best paths for us to settle and colonize the inner system and to get into deep space. They have potential as actual vehicles too, as we could load equipment onto a comet while it was in system and let it ride out. That's one of those ultra low energy approaches we can utilize if we never get substantially better at doing spaceflight than we are now. There's a future in which we don't get better and we move out to deep space and even other solar systems by fission reactors and riding comets and jumping between them over generations, but there's also a future where we direct countless comets towards Mars to bring it air and water, or dissect comets and haul their pieces to asteroid colonies or orbital habitats, 
to allow life to thrive inside those without paying the shipping bill from Earth and exporting our own sea and sky. It can be easy to forget the sheer immensity of fuel we use moving a rocket even just for the mass of air, let alone the water that spaceships and big space habitats would need, but comets represent a great source for those, especially actual comets, those ice bodies whose eccentric orbits bring them close into our system, rather than the many Kuiper belts, scattered disk, or Oort cloud objects we'll discuss reaching in a bit. Let's talk about Halley's Comet for a moment. It is doubtless the most famous comet, being observed long before Edmund Halley documented it as a recurring object in 1705. It comes through about once in a human lifetime, last appearing in 1986, where I got to see it as a smeary telescope blower as a little kid, and will next make its appearance in 2061. So statistically, most folks listening to this now will get to see that comet even without any major improvements in medical science and lifespans. Now, was it worth seeing? I'll be honest, I didn't find it much of a sight as a little kid, but I was five, and while I had a love of astronomy as a kid, that didn't really blossom till I was seven or eight. Maybe that's why I don't really mind the idea of ripping it apart to fuel solar expansion. Halley's Comet represents about 220,000 megatons of potentially usable rocket fuel, air, and water. That's enough for a million Kaplanic-class space habitats housing hundreds in comfort, or even a hundred or so full-scale O'Neill cylinders, each home to hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So you could build an entire major spacefaring nation out of that comet alone, and far more if we're being miserly and hyper-efficient instead of building pseudo-Earth living conditions full of garden space, forests, and farms. I figure by 2061, when Halley returns, we ought to have a real presence on the Moon, have put people on Mars, presumably also semi-permanently, and have at least a couple of space stations that actually have spin gravity and some real garden or botanical section at least. To expand beyond that we will want some more easily available resources like comets. The good news for folks who might feel queasy about dismembering Halley's Comet is twofold. First, it is very unlikely we will be in position to extract all but a minuscule fraction of its resources off in 2061, and keep in mind it blows tons of them off every 75 year pass through the inner system, potentially a thousandth of its mass, which would be huge to us in value to capture, and second, there are plenty of other icy bodies that pass through which are less historically interesting. Initially of course, what we really want them for is making fuel out of. Something like our current space station needs about a ton of nitrogen and a quarter of that in oxygen, and thus you could refill it around a hundred billion times off Halley's Comet. Alternatively, as we noted at the beginning, you would need millions of them to give oceans to a planet like Mars or Venus. You could also blow through a thousand tons of fuel just lifting a fairly modest rocket payload into orbit, and ten or more times that if you want to take that same payload and bring up enough fuel from Earth with it to get it to the Moon or Mars or a near-Earth asteroid. So short term, that's what we really want comets for, fuel. Now Halley's Comet only goes out to about Neptune and Pluto distance, being at Apelion, or furthest from the Sun, at 35 AU, astronomical units or 35 times the distance Earth is from the Sun. Alternatively, it gets as close as 0.6 AU to the Sun at perihelion, a bit closer than even Venus gets. And this is a pretty key notion here because objects travel at highest speed when nearest whatever they're orbiting and slowest when furthest. 
Halley's Comet only spends about 1% of its orbital path at Earth's distance or closer, but spends a shorter percentage of time there as it's falling towards the Sun and picking up speed, which it then loses on the way out, thus moves through the hottest part of its journey the fastest. Only when it's closest to the Sun is that tail very visible, and in its 75 year journey that large visibility to us is only a handful of weeks, even if it is visible dimly for a bit longer and to telescopes yet longer. Comets develop their coma, a thin atmosphere of evaporating or sublimating and escaping gas, as far out as 5 AU, Jupiter distances, but the brilliant tail is definitely for things as close as Mars and closer. There is a distance from our Sun, based on its brightness, where ice can be exposed to sunlight and stop sublimating off. Ice in a vacuum doesn't melt into liquid and evaporate, it turns directly into a gas, sublimation, and we call this distance the frost line, and the further in you are from it the faster this sublimation occurs. This is what causes the growing brightness of comets as they get closer and the reason why the asteroids in the belt and the three moons of the inner system don't have vast amounts of ice on their surfaces. Once you're out past that frost line, there's not much that isn't covered in ice that isn't instead covered with an atmosphere. The frost line for our solar system can be debated to be anywhere between 3 to 5 AU from the Sun, and was probably closer when the solar system was younger and our Sun dimmer, which probably helped us get our oceans back since comets would live longer and have more of a chance of hitting us and giving us their water and other volatiles. So we tend to refer to comets as coming from out in the deeper solar system, which is full of such bodies, but an ice body that turns into a comet is structurally different after a while, they are evaporating material off and getting a crust, I've heard it compared to ice cream being deep fried or dipped in chocolate, whereas the interior is more porous and an amorphous ice mix of ultra-core ices not normally formed on Earth, and other ice substances like methane and ammonia. You start with an icy body that has gotten perturbed onto a more elliptical course that brings it inside that frost line, the more time it spends in that zone and the closer to the sun it gets, the more quickly it loses material, this outgassing, both the ion and dust trails act as minor rockets on the comet, changing its trajectory, something we'll discuss taking advantage of later. That comet is also more likely to run into the sun or a planet the more times it passes through and the more closely it does so, and the more likely it is to get its orbit perturbed by its own rocket-like tail or a gravitational tug by a nearby planet, so that it either does not return or follows a different path and orbital period next time. Assuming it doesn't crash into something, which again is how we think we got our oceans, or get ejected from the inner system, it will eventually stop outgassing. Halley's Comet, for instance, is expected to keep outgassing for perhaps as much as 10 million years, but more weakly every time. We believe a sizable fraction of near asteroids are former extinct comets. And comet is very much a temporary state, in astronomical timelines, not something eternal. The comets we see are not the ones the dinosaurs saw before that last asteroid that ended them. Size, period, and perihelion are the big controlling factors on how long it takes for a comet to go extinct. Halley's Comet is what is known as a short period comet, those with a period of less than 200 years that generally don't go much out past Neptune or the Kuiper Belt. They're all shorter period comets though, such as Encke's Comet, that don't go even out past Jupiter. Long period comets are anything over 200 years and can potentially be millions of years per orbit if coming from the Oort cloud. 
With sufficient observations and astronomy, a mobile colony with a nice supply of nuclear fission fuel could leapfrog between comets and likely migrate to other solar systems this way. Most of these icy bodies have plenty of rock in them too, and metals, including fissile fuels that colonists could extract and use. See our episode using asteroids and comets as spaceships for more details. Now I mentioned making rocket fuel out of comets, or icy bodies out past our frost line, and this is pretty straightforward, though we have multiple fuels we can make. As we discussed earlier this summer, so long as you have a power supply, solar or nuclear probably, you can take ice or water and by electrolysis turn it into hydrogen and oxygen, the pair of which is one of our best rocket fuels, but we can also get that oxygen from many other molecules including rocks, and hydrogen can be gotten from both methane and ammonia, both plentiful in comets, or you can simply melt and centrifuge out that methane and now you have a portable fuel supply to return to places like the Moon or various space bases. As we discussed earlier this summer in our episode on lunar mining and refining, there is essentially an unlimited supply of oxygen on the Moon or any other asteroid, as is the most common molecule in most rocks and minerals, but inside the frost belt virtually none have hydrogen in any form. However, hydrogen is quite a pain to store and move by itself, even diatomic hydrogen molecules are, by being so small and reactive, just prone to leaking and corroding tanks, while a methane molecule, 1 carbon and 4 hydrogen, 25% hydrogen by mass, is much easier to store and move, as is an ammonia molecule, 1 nitrogen and 3 oxygen, 18% hydrogen by mass, while H2O water is merely 11% hydrogen by mass. But you can use both ammonia and methane as direct rocket fuels, Ammonium nitrate is a good solid rocket fuel, and ammonia perchlorate is one of our favorite solid rocket fuels, and chlorine is also readily available on various moons and asteroids, and not exactly rare in comets either. So we have a lot of options for in-situ fuel production with comets. Overall, methane is just a very easy fuel to store and work with, and tends to leave less residue on rockets when burning so it's a nice fuel for spaceships looking for an easy bulk fuel rather than simply the highest performing one. I could easily imagine pods of methane being shipped back from comets or icy asteroids to the moon or one of the Martian moons of Phobos and Deimos, where oxygen can be created as a byproduct of refining metals, and you could be electromagnetically fleeing methane or methane-oxygen fuel pods back and forth between those two or filling up and transferring to other spaceships and space stations. There are around 4,000 comets we currently track, and likely many more we don't yet track, and each is likely to have an ideal harvesting pattern, with some rocket that could be sent ahead of time to get set up and then start chucking empty fuel pods to do it for filling. And that would be a very mobile industry with lots of elaborate calculation and paperwork going into making them more efficient and productive, and constantly moving to the next target. Done right, it could be an incredibly cheap and abundant way to fuel all space travel besides getting off Earth itself, and thus allowing large and heavily shielded spaceships for crewed missions and bulk production of metals and plastics in space, for things like power satellites, solar shades and mirrors, space stations and space habitats. Speaking of those space habitats, one of the keys to doing that is not only having air to breathe but also air that plants can breathe. We often use a lower pressure oxygen only mix in spaceships and suits to minimize leakage, as lower pressure pure oxygen is sufficient for humans and leakage through holes and joints is faster at higher pressures. 
Not to mention that a full-pressure pure oxygen environment is stupidly flammable and dangerous. However, our normal air is about 4 parts nitrogen to 1 part oxygen, and that's critical to any sort of farm or ecology being set up in space. Ammonia, easily found in comets, is a great source for that nitrogen, and every two molecules of ammonia we import into a space habitat can be combined with oxygen to make one nitrogen molecule of air and three molecules of water. Again, it's easy to source oxygen pretty much anywhere, and it will be a waste byproduct of a lot of asteroid and moon mining, so by shipping in pods of ammonia we can turn an asteroid mining colony, initially dependent entirely on outside supplies, into one that is using its waste oxygen and imported nitrogen to produce local gardens, farms, or other ecologies. An isolated mining facility might grow its own food, or export food, or even get donations or tax write-offs by creating local nature preserves. This is how we would see many asteroid mines slowly turning into a profitable community, with many luxuries like spin gravity, fresh food, and air and water that's more naturally recycled. This might start with a few simple hydroponic bays growing some fresh veggies and herbs, and those facilities would likely grow in scope to include elaborate gardens and even nature preserves, and those asteroid mines are potentially the primary customer for pushing ice in from comets or icy bodies. So too, all those orbital facilities, power beaming stations, space hotels, dockyards, and refineries, all need those volatiles and have a way to pay for them, making trade viable. This isn't an episode on mining asteroids however, it's on mining comets, and it turns out some different techniques are available. First off, the very nature of comets suggests a pathway for harvesting it, you can just melt it inside a big bag or box, but in a lot of cases what you might instead do is use a hot knife to slice out a big block, then cover that in a thin reflective tin foil to help it from losing material as it makes its way inward. Or maybe even just mount a shiny reflective parabolic dish on the front side facing the sun, bouncing that light away so it doesn't melt your snowball, and instead dump it into a power collector forward of that dish. Maybe you coat the comet, or comet fragment, in a thin layer of plastic to keep it outgassing as you bring it in system. Strategic vents placed on it could be opened to provide maneuvering thrust. You are making a decision early on whether or not you plan to bring the comet into some facility or to leave it on its natural orbit, though you might also push it to a better orbit or bring a bigger refinery to it. You also have to decide if you want to do your refining at the asteroid or comet or send big chunks back for work elsewhere. For any on-site refining, a basic centrifuge is viewed as a good option, and you could be powering that centrifuge and other production with the pale bulk dish I mentioned a moment ago, powering your operations while protecting your investment from the sun's heat. Incidentally, while some folks do suggest using an actual transport pod or rocket made out of ice and filled with ice and other cargo, usually spray painted with a thin insulative paint, I am not a big fan of this approach. It works, but strikes me as wasteful compared to a reusable pod that can also include more elaborate components for monitoring, maneuvering, and other applications. In either version we have the options of using either a small nuclear reactor, or RTG, radioisotope thermal generator, or simple mirrors and dishes reflecting sunlight, to evaporate material or even generate a rocket flame for acceleration or for maneuvering the cargo. We also have the solar moth option, which is where long wing-like reflectors bounce concentrated sunlight into superheat gas or even to ionize it and run it through an ion drive, slow but very efficient, 
especially in terms of mass you have to send there to begin with. I should also note that you can do some fairly elaborate parts made out of ice or other frozen substances that could be 3D printed on the site. Those can potentially include nice igloo domes, which crew can inhabit and equipment can be put into. There's also a lot to be said about drilling into the comet and mining the interior, thus hollowing the comet out, an approach we also often contemplate for asteroid mining, as the near absence of gravity means no concerns of collapse, and this allows you to take advantage of the outside of the object for radiation shielding. Some heat shielding would also allow crews to live comfortably inside the comet, or the use of temperature and pressure sensitive equipment. You might even mount a big airlock door on the outside and flat out bring ships inside the comet to pick up and drop off cargo. Now in the short term, we are really only interested in comets in the Jupiter region, it sweeps out many of those that come in from deeper out, but it actually takes a lot of water and other volatiles to keep making fuel and habitats and plastics out of. We usually estimate dozens of megatons of volatiles being needed for something like an O'Neill Cylinder, and we want to build a lot of those, so eventually you move into the Kuiper Belt and scatter discs, or even the Oort Cloud, for your icy bodies. Now you might send a bit of these icy bodies in piecemeal, after all many will be quite large, but you might opt to turn the entire thing into a comet. A carefully timed and positioned nuclear detonation has good odds of shoving the remaining comet into an eccentric orbit, taking it closer to the Sun in a few centuries. Usually we would envision that detonation being at a slight distance from the comet, incidentally, not inside it or even on its surface, as you're mostly seeking to ablate material off it, and want the energy pores to distribute rather evenly over the surface. But moving something this way sacrifices a lot of its material into propellant or takes a very long time, or both. So an alternative option would be to plant a nuclear reactor, fission or fusion if you've got it, on that asteroid and use the electricity to vaporize, ionize, and accelerate material off the comet at the ultra-high speeds we associate to an ion drive, or even a particle accelerator. So too, we might send enormous beams or microwaves to an icy body or comet from solar farms near the Sun, and use that energy to ablate or evaporate material off the icy body to produce thrust in a desired direction or to ionize it and run it out an ion drive, or to power a large mass driver that could hurl pods full of cargo to their destination. This still isn't fast, but allows much higher velocities and with less comet wasted than many other alternatives. In the end, there are far more icy bodies out in the deep than there are asteroids in the asteroid belt, and so we should never have a shortage of icy bodies for filling habitats with, making plastics, or generating rocket fuel from. It is worth keeping in mind though that the value of these bodies, as opposed to mining nitrogen off Venus, Titan, or some other outer moon, is negated if you rush the job, so slow and steady wins the race with comet mining. This would seem to strongly favor automation, like robot probes carrying comet mining rigs and dropping them off at likely comets, but it could be that a lot of folks looking for peace, quiet, and elbow room might decide that living inside a comet or icy body and shipping volatiles back home for trade was a nice option. They might even use a power beaming or nuclear powered mass driver to fire home those pods while using them as a propellant to push themselves further away, toward another icy body they might also want to claim, or even as an interstellar ship, bringing life to a new system. 
That seems appropriate, since not only do we think comets brought oceans to our own world for life to evolve in, but the panspermia theory of those basic life elements being created in comets and coming down to Earth is still on the top 5 list of ways life might have emerged on Earth. It may be that comets will turn out to be how we bring life to the rest of the solar system and the galaxy beyond. We are just about back to the school season, which for me means slightly fewer kids running around distractingly and distractedly around my studio, but for a lot of us that means we or a loved one is heading off to college, where access to the internet is vital, but where that internet is almost bound to be on someone else's network. I don't think most folks check what the privacy policy of their college or the local coffee shop with free Wi-Fi is, or how scrupulously they follow it, or what random stranger is spying on your internet traffic, throttling your internet bandwidth based on your activity, or looking at your country of origin for deciding what videos you can watch or what price you pay for merchandise. This is exactly what VPNs help protect you from, and nobody beats NordVPN when it comes to speed, quality, ease of use, and additional features, like their top-notch password manager NordPass, which I use constantly, and NordLocker, their easy-to-use encrypted cloud storage. With NordVPN, not only can no one else spy on your web traffic, but neither does NordVPN, they don't track or share what you do online, your traffic is encrypted and has a kill switch to instantly shut off the connection if there's a problem. And best yet, one account can protect up to six devices, with dedicated apps for any major platform. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee if you don't like them, and 24-7 customer support to help you whenever you need it. You get a discount of 4 bonus months if you sign up for any of their 2-year plans through our link, nordvpn.com slash and Nord keeps sponsoring our show if they see that link used a lot. Sometimes people hear about NordVPN, open up a new tab, and start searching, but they didn't use our link. I'm glad they got the service, but you get a discount and you support the channel through that link. So if you're trying to support SFIA by signing up for Nord, please use my link, nordvpn.com slash to get that discount and to protect your privacy. So a few announcements before we get to our upcoming schedule of episodes. Today's episode spent a lot of time in the Kuiper Belt and is our unofficial sequel to our episode Colonizing the Kuiper Belt earlier this year, and I spent a lot of you all familiar with the New Horizons spacecraft which has been so critical to learning more about the Kuiper Belt, and myself, the National Space Society, and many others are asking folks to help encourage NASA to keep New Horizons going at its purpose-built mission of Kuiper Belt exploration. I could tell you all the reasons why we should, but there's someone vastly more qualified who'd ask for a moment of your time. Hello everyone, it's Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. This is Alan Stern, NASA's principal investigator and the mission leader of the New Horizons mission. New Horizons is the only spacecraft ever sent to explore the Kuiper Belt, and the only one currently planned to go there. We have valuable new Kuiper Belt observations and also a search for a new flyby target still to complete every year until we leave the belt in 2027. Quitting this exploration prematurely, while New Horizons is still in the belt after NASA spent nearly a billion dollars to get us there, seems to many of us to be tragically mistaken, a poor use of taxpayer money, and a lost scientific opportunity that can never be recovered from. Thank you, Alan. As I was writing this episode I was painfully aware of how much we still have to learn about the Kuiper Belt, and for my part I'd hate to lose this opportunity. 
Folks, if you'd like to help keep New Horizons functioning at its best to help us keep exploring New Horizons in deep space, the National Space Society has a petition up on Change.org that we're asking folks to sign, which is linked in this episode's description. If you can take a minute to sign it, and if you want to take more minutes, a polite letter to your congressman can often work wonders too. Either way, thank you for your time, for listening to this episode and this request. When I was getting ready to write this episode, the first thing I did was pick up my old copy of Mining the Sky by John Lewis, which is the quintessential comet and asteroid mining book whose first edition in the late 90s helped me and so many others start thinking about new ways to settle space. So the second thing I did was to email John to ask if he had any new thoughts he'd like to tell us all about, and unfortunately for health reasons he couldn't be actively involved in this episode, but he is nevertheless the inspiration for so much of it, and if you want to learn more about this topic, I strongly recommend picking up a copy of Mining the Sky, and this episode is dedicated to him, for everything he has done to improve all knowledge and passion for space, and for all the work he's done for the National Space Society over the years. Speaking of the National Space Society, we have another Space Forum tonight, Thursday, August 17th, at 9pm Eastern, where Melody Yashor will be discussing automated additive construction, building habitats on the Moon and Mars. I'll leave a link in the episode description for the registration page, and as always, those are free to attend online. Speaking of upcoming discussions, next week we'll look at the concept of devolution and ask if fictional mutant degenerates like Morlocks and Chuds might be possible in our future. Then we'll close out the month with our livestream Q&A, Sunday, August 27th at 4pm Eastern Time, and then Thursday, August 31st with a look at near-term space colonization. Then it's into September for Living in Space on September 7th. On the 14th, we're asked about the infrastructure we need to build in our solar system to colonize it, and then we'll jump into Sci-Fi Sunday on September 17th to celebrate SFIA's ninth birthday with The Fermi Paradox Fallen Empires. And if you missed this weekend's Sci-Fi Sunday, Cyborg Arby's, you can check it out now. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. You can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you want to donate and help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content, at go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week!